Welcome to the final podcast in this series, Parliament Explained. I'm Mira Sayal, and in this series I've been exploring exactly what happens in Parliament. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to the programme on your podcast app so that it downloads automatically every Monday. Last time, we learned about the different types of bills and how they pass through different stages of changes, debate and scrutiny in each house before becoming Acts of Parliament, the laws of the land. Today, we're going to look at how you can take an active part in Parliament's work and have an influence on the decisions that are made. To start us off, we asked a few people what they thought their role was in how the UK is run. You may have thought about this yourself before. I vote and sign petitions. If you want a proper democracy, you've got to encourage people to get active in it. You know, you you can't just sit on the couch and throw your dinner at the telly and stuff. Um, So I'm too young to vote. I'm only 16. It's quite annoying that I don't get a say in, like, what happens in the country. I love to have votes at 16. I do vote local elections, but I'm not... I don't vote um, the national one. I regularly vote, but that's all. I always vote, um, especially as a woman. I think our role in general is obviously to vote, to look at what the government are doing, to keep an eye on it, and if you don't agree with something, to write to your MP or to protest it in some way. I voted, I've signed e-petitions as an artist and as a performer. I've signed many petitions um, asking the government to provide answers to be held accountable to um, debate certain issues in Parliament. I'm certainly more engaged when there's an election or a referendum, so um, I do always vote. Not that the vote has ever actually gone my way when I have voted. I vote and, and I basically work and act every day uh, in a way that I think contributes to society. So, uh, yeah, if everybody does a little bit, then society works. Um, yeah, I've signed petitions. Um, I think the use of social media for these sort of things are, are getting them a lot more out in the public eye. And, but I'm certainly not one of these people who just signs everything. It has to be important to me. I do care and I think it's really important for people to vote because they can't have a moan if they're not even going to bother voting. People have thought died for us to vote, so I think it is important. Let's start with an overview. First of all, you can have a say in who represents you by voting when there is a general election. Once they're elected, you can contact your MP and ask them to take up an issue on your behalf in the House of Commons. You can also contact a member of the House of Lords to do the same. You can keep up with news and debates on the Parliament website. You may wish to share your experiences with a select committee in either house, and you can create or sign a petition to raise awareness of an issue and call for action. But perhaps the most basic way you can have a say in how the UK is governed is by voting. In the UK, something pretty special happens every five years. We hold a general election. On this one day, every eligible person in the UK can place a vote and be part of electing their local representative to Parliament. Parties and candidates campaign to win votes by visiting constituents door-to-door, holding debates and publishing manifestos, a bit like a shopping list of what they plan to do if they're voted in. But how does the election work? Let's ask Lynn Hobson, Regional Outreach Officer for the Houses of Parliament. The UK is divided into 650 local areas called constituencies, each of which is represented by one Member of Parliament. Voters register to make sure they can take part. On election day, polling stations are open from dawn till dusk. And if a voter can't make it along, there are other ways to make sure you can take part, including voting by post. 
Once every vote has been placed, the ballots are counted to find out which candidate has come out top in each area. This is called first past the post. The elected MPs enter Parliament to sit in the House of Commons and represent everyone in their constituency, even if they didn't vote. The political party with most MPs, the majority, is invited by the Queen to form a government. And if there's a hung Parliament, where there's no clear winner, then a minority government or a coalition government may be created, or a fresh election held. So on this one day, a little piece of paper with your mark plays a big role in deciding who leads our country. To vote in a general election, you need to be registered to vote, which you can do online or by post. It's very confusing because you assume that the person with the most votes is going to win, not the person who's got the most votes at a certain point is going to win. I think it's confusing. It needs to be made a little bit more transparent and clear for people to understand. Me personally, I think we should have proportional representation. I think that'll be fair all along, you know. A better view, then, of the views of all, all the people, wouldn't it? I'm mixed, in my opinion, because I support a party which doesn't really make a large proportion of the votes made. I'm a bit worried about more extreme parties becoming more vocal in the public sphere, and certainly the first-past-the-post system does deter that from happening. Proportional representation, smaller parties would have more of a say, which maybe is fair, but isn't this something I would want. On proportional representation, I think it's, yeah, I think it's very important. I think the first class of place system is a really good because it allows us to have that constituency link. I think if we move to other things like uh, additional voting or single transferable voting, I don't think we would necessarily have a strong outcome that first class of place gives you. So I'm, I'm for it, really. The idea of it is quite traditional because you want strong government. Its relevance in today's society is questionable. Both the MP in your area and members of the House of Lords work for you. To help get in touch with them, many will list phone, email or post details as well as social media on the Parliament website. Just search for Find a Member of the Lords or Find My MP. Here's Gary Hart, another of the Houses of Parliament's regional outreach officers. MPs and peers want to hear from us. They will try to help with issues that are important to you as long as they are the responsibility of the UK Parliament rather than, say, your local council or the Scottish, Welsh or Northern Irish governments. So, for example, you can ask them for advice or assistance on issues about pensions, benefits, UK-wide taxes, national insurance, immigration, energy, defence, data protection, a whole range of issues. Both MPs and Lords can write directly to a government minister on your behalf and obtain information for you, or in some cases, speak directly to officials about your concerns. Lords and MPs can also represent you by raising matters in each house on your behalf. They can do this in a number of ways, including asking questions in the chamber or in writing, participating in debates and introducing or changing legislation. They can't, however, interfere in court decisions and they can't help with private disputes. You can find your MP using your postcode on the UK Parliament website. Just go on to www.parliament.uk and at the bottom of the homepage you'll see a space where you can type in your postcode to find your MP. And your MP has his or her own individual page with constituency details, address, contact details and so on. Members of the Lords don't have a geographical constituency that they represent. Instead, they will often have a topic of interest or background in a particular area of policy. To help you choose which of them to contact, again, go on the website, 
parliament.uk and you can filter the list of members of the Lords by interest. We learned in the last episode, if you want to influence a specific bill, you can also use Parliament's website to follow events and contact members in each house at important stages of the bill's progress. This is even more important in the Lords, where there is not one individual representative for your area. By checking who gets involved with the draft law you're interested in, you can see which members of the Lords are likely to want to get your opinions on it. So do some research, find out which peers have asked questions, which peers have an interest in a particular area and contact those relevant peers. In news reports, we often hear about people lobbying their MP or lobbying Parliament. Lynn, what does lobbying mean? Lobbying is when an individual or group tries to persuade someone in Parliament to support a particular policy or campaign. It can be done in person by sending letters and emails or through social media. Anyone can lobby their Member of Parliament or Member of the House of Lords, but it's usually more effective if you can find other people who share your concerns or experiences to lobby with. People who often lobby Parliament and its members include businesses, charities, pressure groups, trade unions, representatives of various sector industry groups, but you should too. You can get in touch with your local MP or a Member of the House of Lords who might be interested in your issue. One of the best ways you can get involved in Parliament is to keep in touch with what's going on. And there are lots of ways you can do this. Because Parliament works on behalf of all of us, it's really important that it's open and accountable. To make sure it is, Parliament publishes detailed information about its work online. And both houses post updates on the Parliament website, as well as their own Facebook and Twitter pages. Also, you can go to the Get Involved section of the Parliament website and sign up for the Outreach Engagement newsletter. Everything that happens in each House's chamber and many of the committees is streamed on parliamentlive.tv. You can watch or listen live or stream later. If video isn't your thing, Hansard is the official written record of Parliament. Everything that's said in Parliament is written up word for word and published online in three hours flat. How about those changes to draft bills? Each proposed change is published online, as well as the stage of each bill and the time and date of the next stage. And you can visit in person to watch the business of the Houses. The chambers and committee rooms are open to the public to attend free of charge when the Houses are sitting. You'll need tickets for Prime Minister's questions as it's so popular, but otherwise you can queue up on the day. Next up, we're going to talk about a way for members of the public to get an issue raised in Parliament without necessarily needing their MP or a Lord to do it for them. Lots of people have issues they are passionate about, such as... My mum's a teacher and she teaches 80 kids. It's ridiculous. I think more money should be spent on teachers. The NHS is a massive issue for me, and I know that that's a national issue, but, but on a local level, I've got friends who, who work in the NHS, and so I hear stories you know, on a weekly basis of the struggles that, that they're going through and the problems that they're having, and that can only be magnified on a national level. Obviously, the homeless, people with drink and drug alcohol problems. Uh, I don't know, and housing is, is sort of horrendous at the moment. I mean, just to get somewhere to live, my friend at the moment's got five kids in a two-bedroom flat, and there's no way they can get out of it. For me, probably house prices and things like that and renting for younger people. Schools, schools. I'm worried about my child because uh, we're not able to find the right school for my child right now. From my point of view, 
the NHS in my area. I mean, for goodness sake, I had to wait like six weeks for an appointment one time. We pay a lot of road tax and there's a lot of roads that are still rubbish, particularly where I live. Come up with a um, policy on immigration that people are more happy with um, because something needs to be done to help people who are coming into the country. In the digital age, it's easier than ever to get the word out and encourage others to support a particular cause. Starting a petition is one way of getting your voice heard in Parliament. A petition is a written request asking Parliament or the government to do something specific, for example, making or changing a law, or to take action on a particular issue. You can invite other people to add their support by signing their name to your petition if they agree with its aims. In this way, Petitions can be used to demonstrate the strength of public support for your cause. To tell us more, we're joined by Helen Jones, MP, Chair of the House of Commons Petition Select Committee. The Petitions Committee is a, a cross-party group of MPs. All MPs are nominated by their own party, but the chair is selected by the whole House of Commons. And we look at petitions that come into Parliament, whether they're paper petitions or ones that come in our website. We decide which petitions get debated. We decide if we want to find more information about a petition and take some evidence. Or we might decide that we want to do a full report on the topic that the petition raises before we debate it, as we've done recently with one on workplace stress codes and as we did earlier with one on brain tumours. All petitions become part of the proceedings of the House and my committee regularly looks at petitions which have finished and makes sure it accepts them as part of the record. We also, by the way, check that the government has answered petitions properly and we chase them up if they are late with the answers. And if we get an answer that we don't think is as serious as it might be, we will write back to the minister or I will write, write back as chair of the committee and say, well, no, well, you haven't answered X, Y or Z, have another go. So there are two types of petition, paper petitions and online e-petitions. Uh, what's the difference? In many ways, a paper petition is easier to do, but they're usually used for collecting signatures on a local issue because obviously you can take paper around to your friends and neighbours very easily. And it has to be in a particular form of words which your local MP will advise you on. If it's a, a big national issue, then probably an e-petition is best because once it's online, people from all over the country can sign it and they need to give their email address obviously so that we can check that these are real signatures and uh, not made up ones. We did have a number once that seemed to show an extraordinary number of people working in the British Antarctic Research Station so they obviously had to go <laughs> and we do check for things like that but it is much much easier then to get them signed and if you want to debate on it as I say it's easier to spread the word to people all over the country. So, once you've collected all your signatures, how would you present a petition to Parliament? Well, if you want to start a paper petition, you need to get your MP to present it to Parliament. They can either stand up and say a little about it at the end of the day's business, or they can just put it in the bag behind the chair. Then it comes to us to look at. Anyone can start an e-petition by going online going onto our website, you're asked to give a few details about why you're starting the petition. And once you have five signatures, the petition will be looked at by our staff and be moderated. 
and that's to make sure it's about something that Parliament can do something about and also that it, it doesn't offend against any of our rules, it's not offensive language, it's not racist and so on. Once they've done that, it goes online and you can get lots of people to sign it. The best way is to spread the word as much as you can on social media, in the press, if you've got any contacts with them, on your local radio station and so on. Because the most successful petitions are ones where people do a fair bit of work after they've put the petition on the site to encourage people to sign. All government and parliament e-petitions can be found online at petition.parliament.uk. You can see the petitions that other people have created on the site and sign any which you strongly agree with. We'll have more details on where to look, as well as numbers you can call for more information at the end of the episode. So, what happens to your petition once it has been presented on paper or submitted online? What happens is that, first of all, if a petition gets to 10,000 signatures, it gets a response from the government. Now, that is the government's response, not the select committee's response. Now, after that, if a petition gets to about 100,000, we will normally consider it for a debate. We try to give debating time to issues that aren't being discussed elsewhere. So if something has just been debated recently, it's less likely to get a petitions debate. But we've also left ourselves some leeway to look at petitions which will never reach 100,000, but they might be very important to a small group of people. The petition on brain tumour research was a good example of that, although it did eventually, with all the publicity, reach 100,000. We thought it wouldn't, but we thought, nevertheless, this is an important topic and it's not being discussed elsewhere. So our main aim is to get things debated in Parliament that wouldn't otherwise be discussed. It doesn't mean that the Petitions Committee necessarily agree with the petition, or all of us agree with it, some might, some might not, but that we think it's an issue that's worthy of being debated, and that's the important thing. Occasionally, if we've got room in our debating slots, we might look at petitions that haven't quite reached the 100,000 mark. But I always say to people, you need to consider a petition as part of your campaign, not the end of it, because a petition by itself can't change the law. The most successful petitions have been where people use them as part of a campaign to get something that they wanted to happen and that they went on from there and when you get a petitions debate it's very important to contact your MP and get other people to contact their MPs and to ask them to come along to the debate. Again the most successful petitions have done that. Brain tumours was a good example, the petition on women's state pension age was also a very good example where the room was so full not even all the MPs could get a seat. So there is work to do if you want to be successful after you've put your petition on site and after we've agreed to a debate on it. Petitions can be an effective way to get an issue onto the agenda and can lead to real action by the government. So let's look at an example. Maria Lester is a journalist who lost her brother Stephen Ralph, aged just 26, to a brain tumour. Well, the first anniversary of Stephen's death was coming up and I wanted to do something to mark the occasion and originally I was going to write a piece about his life to try and raise some awareness of, of brain cancer. 
but as part of that I got in touch with a, a great charity called Brain Tumor Research and they opened my eyes to some really shocking statistics. So I, I learned that brain tumors are the biggest cancer killer of children in under 40s, that more than 80% of those diagnosed don't survive beyond five years, that unlike most cancers, brain tumor instance is actually increasing and it's up about 25% since 1970. And yet, despite all those things, just 1.5% of the national spend on research into cancer was going into research on this. So I really wanted to do something about it. Um, so I started the petition. I was just really shocked. I think like many people, I just had absolutely no idea that brain tumors were the biggest cancer killer of children and young people under 40. Um, I had always assumed that they were sort of extremely rare. Unfortunately, that isn't the case. So that, that motivated me to want to do something to try and change it. So where to start? Maria found her answer online. I had heard of other people starting petitions online, but I didn't really know how to go about it or how complicated it was, um, so I was really pleasantly surprised to find that it was easy. I launched the petition at home and it was very easy to do. I just went online, filled out the things. I had to get a few friends to kind of second it and support it. Um, and then I think it was checked and it took a few days to sort of get up and running. And then I guess I included the link at the end of my article, which was kind of the first time I really put it out there and I had no idea what to expect but within a week we had about 10,000 signatures which was just fantastic and we just kept campaigning from there. It had over a thousand responses in just 10 days which I gather is one of the biggest responses they've had to anything like that. The petitions committee got involved when we were at around about 14-15,000 signatures so quite early on. Um, I think they perhaps thought we might not get to the 100,000 signatures level, um, but they obviously thought it was a topic that was worth investigating further, so they decided to have this inquiry to look into it. The committee was also shocked by the statistics and invited Maria, along with charities like Brain Tumor Research and other experts, to give evidence in Parliament. They set up an online forum so that the wider public could share their experiences with the committee, and at the end of their inquiry, the committee issued their own report, calling on the government to take action. Meanwhile, Maria and her supporters campaigned in the media to help publicise the petition, and soon it had attracted over 120,000 signatures, which meant that the issue would almost certainly be debated in the House of Commons. Um, myself and my parents were invited down to Westminster to go and give formal evidence to the committee alongside charities and medical experts um, so that was a really good opportunity to put our story across and also highlight some of the areas that we thought really needed to be addressed um, we were kept really in the loop it did sound more scary than it was actually I think people do perhaps associate it with the kind of you know select committees that you perhaps see on the news and and but we weren't in for a grilling at all they were really nice and they just let us tell our own kind of stories in our own words um, you know it wasn't high pressured or stressful when you start a petition at home in your bedroom you don't expect to end up being in a debate in the house of commons so it, you know it's been a real insight into the way things work 
It was fantastic to be invited down to the House of Commons for the debate. I, I don't think myself or my parents ever expected that we would we would be able to be there and, and sit and watch the whole democracy in action. You know, we got to sit in and listen to all the arguments, um, which were all very positively in, in favour of, of doing more about brain tumours. Helen Jones to move the motion. Thank you, Sir Edward. It's a great pleasure to be here under your chairmanship and to see so many colleagues here for this debate on funding for research into brain tumours. The first report of the new Petition Select Committee. We began this inquiry in response to a petition started by Maria Lester. And it is fair to say, I think my colleagues would agree, that we began it in a state of ignorance. We did not know a great deal about brain tumours or their impact. But as we proceeded with the inquiry, we were both humbled and shocked. We were humbled by the people who came forward to give evidence to us. We received over 1,100 posts on our web thread in 10 days. It was absolutely packed. It was packed in terms of MPs and also people wanting to come into the public space. By that point, the Petitions Committee inquiry report had come out, so there was quite a lot of, of good evidence in there that, that talked about some of the, the areas that needed addressing, and it was great to see people putting those points across and getting our voices heard. Pretty much everybody who spoke spoke in favour of the need to do more about brain tumours. And the result? So after the inquiry report and the debate, the government issued a formal response and it agreed that more brain tumour research is needed and it was fantastic to get that response and feel like that finally that we had been heard and that something was going to be done about it. They have now created a working group of charities and clinical experts who are going to look at some of the key issues that were raised and ways in which they can take action. I think it's really important to keep the issue on the agenda. I don't think, you know, many people would argue against funding more research into this, um, but it's just a case of keeping the issue in the spotlight, keeping the attention on it, and hopefully the, the brain tumour funding is going to get the money that it deserves. You know, research has shown that where the funding leads, then the breakthroughs follow and the survival rates improve. And that I want to get to that point with brain cancer. You know, I watched firsthand what happened to my brother, that he was 26. He was trained to be a pilot in the RAF. He had a, an incredibly bright future ahead of him. And that was just totally taken away by this horrible disease. And in fact, fantastic, bright, brilliant, beautiful young people are being killed by this cruel cancer. I would absolutely encourage others to start a petition. It is a fantastic way of raising awareness for your cause, both among the general public and among MPs. And most importantly, it's, it's available to everyone. So if there is something you believe needs to be changed, why not try to change it? So how about that? Democracy in action and what could be a real life-changing result for thousands of people in the UK. You'll remember earlier in the series we discovered that the role of many select committees is to scrutinise and look in detail at what the government does. Laura Daniels is Senior Committee Specialist for the House of Commons Health Select Committee. So select committees hold inquiries into pressing issues. They then make recommendations for the government to make improvements in those policy areas. We regularly ask people and organisations for their views via something called a call for evidence. 
These are all listed on the Parliament website, so you can basically just search for Open Call for Evidence if you're interested. So we have lots of official language in Parliament, and sometimes this can scare people off a little bit. It can make engaging directly with the public a bit of a problem. So we're really keen to hear from as wide an audience as possible. We're not just after the views of academics or heads of business. Really, we find that the more varied people that take part, the better informed the committee will be. So it's important to remember that even a small amount of knowledge or experience in something means you can contact a committee directly to contribute to an inquiry. Calling for evidence sounds a bit formal. Yeah, we call it collecting evidence. Probably think of law courts, oath swearing, but it's not really that formal, necessarily. You can think of it more like calling for your experiences, thoughts and views. It's important to try to ensure that it's relevant to the committee's terms of reference, and these are published with the call for evidence, because this makes sure that your submission will be as useful as possible to the committee. But if you only want to address some of the terms of reference, of course that's fine. And remember that small details make a big difference to us. Each committee just has a small staff, and we do need to hear from you in writing, but really it just needs to be readable, nothing too formal. So we sometimes ask for comments via social media or at special events, and if you have special requirements, then just give us a call and we'll explain other ways that we can help you uh, get in touch with the committee. So witnesses aren't usually forced to come in. Um, generally speaking, they're people who've sent us particularly interesting submissions uh, that the committee want to hear more from and we invite them to come in to share their ideas in a bit more detail. So towards the end of the inquiry, the committee uses the evidence it's heard as the basis for asking some really tough questions of the people in power. These people are usually officials and ministers who are in charge of the policy area that the committee's looking at. And if the committee's heard from a broad enough range of people, it can make sure it's asking really good, important questions from the people uh, who can actually make a difference in this area. As we've heard, E-petitions are one example of how social media use and the continued rapid uptake in digital communications have made it easier for people to come together, debate and problem solve. Digital debates are another new way for the public to feed in their views and help to shape and inform House of Commons debates. This is where the Commons, working in partnership with specialist charities or campaign groups, invites the public to post their views on Twitter, Facebook and in community forums a few days before a scheduled debate. It's an opportunity for people to share their thoughts and experiences or to put forward the questions that they would like to see raised by MPs. Recent digital debates have tackled issues ranging from dementia and Alzheimer's disease to gangs and youth violence. A Stop Youth Violence Twitter debate reached over 8 million people. This then influenced the House of Commons debate that happened the following month. If there are no further points of order, we come now to the backbench debate on gangs and serious youth violence. To move the motion, I call Mr Chuka Amuna. The issues that we are discussing are difficult. They are not easy. There is no single cause for the violence that we have seen, nor one single solution. And what we are seeing on the streets of our country is leading to a senseless loss of lives. That perhaps explains why the digital debate which the House of Commons digital team organised on Twitter ahead of this debate was the House of Commons' most successful Twitter debate in terms of the number of Twitter accounts over 8 million reached. 
The hashtag for today's debate is Stop Youth Violence, and I'd recommend that anyone watching this debate uses it. The House of Lords hosts an annual series of intergenerational debates, which see the House of Lords Chamber opened up to young people from across the UK and members of civic organisations to debate issues of the day, chaired by the Lord Speaker. The 2014 debate highlighted how different generations are affected by digital changes and explored attitudes to how Parliament should meet the demands of a digital society. It posed the question, in a digital society, is politics for politicians or is everyone a decision maker? What do you think? Well, everyone's entitled to a voice, so if you care about it, you should be entitled to um, have your opinion on it as well. So it shouldn't just be left to the decision makers, it should be down to everyone. I think it's for everyone. I think it's something everyone should be educated in to a certain degree. And I think it's important that everyone does take a part in what's happening. It's a good medium to engage young people, because that's how they communicate with each other. But it needs to be used responsibly. I think everyone is a decision maker. I think it's a good thing. I think everyone's got their opinions and they're able to share them, but I don't know if they're actually listened to. I don't think that everyone's a decision maker, and nor do I think that we should be, but I do think that people are becoming more engaged with politics in general and realising more how it does affect us in a daily life, and I think social media plays a massive part of that. I'd like politicians to have the final say, but I'd like them to also listen to the general public and bear that in mind at the same time. I think it should obviously, you know, we live in a democracy, we should all be able to have our say, but I think rather than all the marketing spiel and having so many words and just actually saying it how it is so that people can understand it and then I think more people would want to get involved. Referendums are a well-known example of where everyone is asked to be a decision maker when a question is put to the country as a whole rather than being decided by politicians. Referendums have been pretty rare in UK political history. In recent years, though, we've seen three. On whether to change the voting system for electing MPs to the House of Commons, from first-past-the-post to alternative vote, on whether or not Scotland should become an independent country, and on whether or not the UK should remain a member of the European Union. Some pretty big questions. How effective do you feel these exercises in direct democracy have been in resolving important questions? And what do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of making decisions in this way? Referendums do not resolve issues because, well, with a recent referendum, it was either a yes or a no, but then if we were out, there was actually no idea of what form of Brexit it should look like. So you had the um, Leave campaign having very different strands of we want to remain in a single market, soft Brexit, or we just want a hard Brexit. So there was no actual united opposition. I mean, the last few referendums, the result has been something I haven't been happy with, and I think that it was a lot of misguided people being allowed to have a vote and a decision on these things. And in that, for that reason, I yeah, I don't, I'm not for referendums. I think there is more scope for us to be decision makers now, um, not on the huge issues, uh, but I would like to see more referendums on things because we have the technology to do it now. We elected those people as our representatives, and they're the ones who should be making the decision. I ban them, personally. Well, they've certainly not gone the way that I've wanted to, and I feel like they've actually caused more problems. I think it's good that we're allowed to make them, but I don't think we are equipped to make such massive decisions with just one kind of simple vote and that's it. It can change a whole society and a whole like group of people's living. So there we have it. 
We've heard about a range of ways that are open to you if you'd like to contribute to the work of Parliament. From speaking to your local MP, contacting a member of the Lords, or submitting evidence to a select committee, to starting a petition or taking part in a digital debate. And of course, by voting when there is an election. Remember, you can also visit Parliament and watch democracy happen firsthand in the chambers and committee rooms. We really hope you've enjoyed this series and that it's helped you understand more about the people and processes involved and the opportunities for you to take part in your UK Parliament. We've talked about how Parliament works to check and challenge the work of the government. We've explored how members of both houses are able to scrutinise government policy and propose legislation through select committees, debates and questions. We've learned that the whole of Parliament has a say in the decisions that are made on our behalf and have found out how laws are made and changed. Now you know more about your own role in our democracy, what will be your first step? How will you get involved? Parliament is ours. It's relevant and it's constantly evolving and there are lots of different ways to follow things that are happening and keep track of events. You can watch proceedings live on www.parliamentlive.tv. You can learn more at www.parliament.uk or check the parliamentary calendar at calendar.parliament.uk to find out what is coming up. If you'd like to keep up to date with what's going on in the House of Lords specifically, you can subscribe to their newsletter by visiting lords-subscriptions.parliament.uk. If you have questions about the work, membership or history of Parliament, you can call the House of Commons Inquiry Office for free on 0800-112-4272 or call the House of Lords Inquiry Service also for free on 0800-223-0855 and they'll be happy to help you access any of the resources we've talked about in this series. Callers with a text phone can talk through Text Relay by calling 18001, followed by either of these relevant full numbers. Thanks again for listening to Parliament Explained. I hope you'll feel inspired to take a closer interest in what Parliament is discussing day to day and consider sending in your views when there is an opportunity. You can also help Parliament in its work by sharing this information with others and encouraging them to take an active interest in their UK Parliament. And don't forget, you can hear the Prime Minister's Question Time podcast each week by searching for UK Parliament on SoundCloud.